0: For more than a year, ominous rumors have been privately circulating among Popenlock listeners that Natalie and Landry had been hard at work on what was hinted to be the ultimate episode, a doomsday podcast. Sources traced the intelligence of the top-secret project to the perpetually fog-shrouded wasteland of the Cato Foreign Policy Department. What they were recording, or why it should be done, only they could say. Welcome to and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers.
1: And I'm Natalie Dauzicki.
0: Joining us today to tell us how they learned to stop worrying and love the bomb and to discuss Stanley Kubrick's classic black comedy, Dr. Strangelove, are the Cato foreign policy all-stars, including Director of Foreign Policy, John Glazer. Hello. Director of Defense Policy Studies, Eric Gomez. Total commitment. Research fellow, Emma Ashford. Hey there. And co-director of the New American Engagement Initiative at the Atlantic Council and former Catonian Chris Preble.
2: Hey everybody.
1: All right. So as Jack D. Ripper said, war is too important to be left to politicians. What do we think about this? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, if you watch these movies, that wouldn't I, I think you wouldn't uh, feel that way. Um <laughs> Although Peter, among Peter Sellers, the three roles that Peter Sellers plays in Doctor Strangelove, um, uh, he does do a pretty good job of playing a completely befuddled
3: uh, U.S. president. It's uh, all three of the characters are great, but I think one of the things the movie zeroes in on is kind of militarism run amok, and he sort of pokes fun at military officials and the pathologies that they can get into, and you know, leaving. You know, I think. The, that that's, that uh, quote speaks to a long-running tension in civil-military relations. You know, the politicians feel they have to protect um, the country from warmongering uh, military officials, say, is the stereotype. And then on the other side, you know, the military thinks these bumbling politicians don't know a thing about war and they should just let us run it. And so, I think that's kind of what he was zeroing in on uh, with that line.
4: The flip side I think is you know war is too important to be left to the generals right the idea that they're pretty narrowly focused. Um, and, you know, in, in Dr. Love, what you see is this just completely befuddled president who he definitely approved everything that caused um, sort of the incident that happens in the film, right? He approved this plan where, you know, uh, command launch authority was delegated down the levels. He approved shutting off their communications. He did all of these things. He obviously didn't understand what he was doing. Um, and the military sort of pushed him that way by telling him it was something we had to do. Um, but it, John's right. It's all about this tension between what the military thinks is necessary to win and fight a war, um, and what politicians might actually think about how we conduct foreign policy.
3: By the way, befuddled is a great word there. Cause I was, re- <laughs> I was, I was rewatching this and it's amazing how clearly Sellers made the decision to make the president, the straight man. You know, he's around all these goofs and these kind of this broad c- comic acting, and he's such a straight man as the president, which is kind of a an unorthodox choice, I think, if you're making a political satire.
1: So a, a few of you hinted at uh, this tension between uh, the military professionals and the politicians. And I was wondering if you guys thought that was still a tension that's going on today, even though this was a satire in the 1960s and kind of <laughs> um, speak speak to that a bit and how that has kind of become a reality, not quite to the extent of the satire, but um, kind of how how our real world situations are oddly or maybe eerily similar to some of these tensions going on throughout Dr. Strangelove.
5: Well, civil military relations has become such a big part of the national discussion in the wake of the chairman of the joint chiefs, General Milley going out uh, with Donald Trump when he cleared Lafayette square of protesters uh, about, about a month ago. Um, and then there's been questions throughout Trump's presidency, too, of the status of civil military relations. And is Trump sort of doing things that are inappropriate um, from sort of norms and practices? Um, When it comes to nuclear command and control, though, I think that in one respect, I think that's okay. Uh, I don't really see a lot of the things that Dr. Strangelove examines were really unique to the time period. And the early Cold War uh, had We did have a lot of pre-delegation of launch authority to generals and military officers, mostly um, ground-based ones in Europe that were sort of right on the front line between the U.S. and Soviet Union who wouldn't really have the time if an attack came to get an order from the president. They'd have to make the life or death decision to use a nuclear weapon uh, right away. Um, So that kind of tension, I think, is definitely gone now. Um, but we're seeing a lot of the civil-military relations problems uh, elsewhere. Another aspect that you know has come up a lot during the Trump uh, presidency is: should the president have unilateral authority to order the use of a nuclear weapon, or should the Congress be involved? Um, it's unclear to me if this is just a Trump concern, and it goes away as soon as he leaves office, uh, whenever that might be, um, or if it's something that's going to be more yeah. enduring. Uh, but in throughout the Cold War, like the debate happened pretty early on. And it was decided, you know, the president should have the final say so. Um, other countries have sort of different authorization authorities, uh, where different people have to be involved. But in the United States, it's really easy for the president to order the use of a nuclear weapon.
4: I mean, I, I have to say, I actually kind of disagree uh, with you, Eric, on that. This is not a Trump administration problem. Doctor Strangelove is getting at an issue that has been basically the same. I mean, even before the Cold War, but but certainly for, from the start of the nuclear period, right? I mean, the the idea that generals might try and force a policymaker to maintain a, a commitment overseas, um, you know, force them to show their resolve. I mean, you know, under Obama, right, we ended up with a general fired because he gave an interview to, I think it was Rolling Stone, in which he basically tried to force um, Obama to to keep troops in part of Iraq. Today, we've got, you know... generals like H.R. McMaster out there talking about, you know, oh, well, if we don't keep trips in Syria, we'll lose the oil. And they're all trying to manipulate policymakers. So, I mean, I don't really think there's a a substantial difference on that front um, from the movie. And actually, I'd go even further. I mean, I think that the absurdity of how sort of nuclear deterrence actually works when you get down to brass tacks, I think that's still the same today. Maybe it's not as easy to have that sort of one man unilateral launch that you don't intend at a lower level. Um, but the whole idea of, you know, can we knock out another country's nukes before they knock out ours? Um, a lot of that absurdity continues today in things like the, the sort of the, the conflict with North Korea that we've been talking about having.
2: Right. I think the hair trigger alert that was that was sort of the norm during this period when this movie was made in 1964 and the use it or lose it dynamics. I think those have been m- moderated since the end of the cold war, but are ramping up again. And so, so we you know, we talk about strategic stability and Eric, you know, this as well as anyone you have written about this, but I think when I watched this movie uh, again, and this would have been maybe the fourth or fifth time that I've watched it, it I was struck by really two things. One it is striking to me that a filmmaker would make a movie about such a serious subject and make it as a comedy 15 months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. So so, and in, in thinking back and sort of the tension of the Cold War period and you had people building bomb shelters in their backyards and, and how sort of. The grim reality of nuclear Armageddon, and I think it's a credit to Stanley Kubrick as one of the one of the greatest directors I believe in you know modern cinema, cinema and to the actors um, because um, George C. Scott was not a comedian, not a comedic actor; he was a dramatic actor, yeah. and yet the, the role he plays is absolutely brilliant. And Peter Sellers, who of course is a genius, and plays three different roles in this film, <laughs> and plays all of them incredibly well. So I so I am I look back on this and sort of thinking about it as a historian of the Cold War and and, and really marvel at the the audacity of making a comedy about this subject at that time.
3: So it's funny because uh, my understanding at least is that Kubrick initially bought the rights to a kind of dramatic thriller novel called Red Alert. And they tried to write a script that was a dramatic thriller. And they realized that they couldn't because it was too absurd and hilarious. So they switched to a satire early on in the writing process. So it's funny that you note that.
4: You know, in some ways, I... I almost wonder if it, it might actually have been easier to write a dark comedy about, you know, about nuclear war in that era when people were actually aware of it, right? When all the kids are having duck and cover drills, and there's all the civil defense drills. And, and you know, I almost wonder if that sort of, you know, this is just gallows humor, right? People think they're probably going to die next year. And so it's hilarious, because it's the only thing you can do about it is laugh, because it's so absurd. And I, I do wonder if, you know, a similar kind of movie produced today, I don't think you'd get Get that same kind of reaction from a population that never really thinks about nuclear weapons anymore.
2: Right. So, think about a f- someone trying to make a comedy about terrorism. I guess, what is it? The, the um,
4: Four Lions. The Four yes. Lions. The
2: Four Lions, which, of course, is, is not well known here in the United States,
4: but it's well known
2: in the UK. Um, Some well, nerds like Emma and me. Yeah. But, but let's remember I mean, so I actually went back and watched. Well, did, a- why did
3: you just l- l- single me out? I've seen Four Lions. <laughs> <laughs> That's another that's a that's an
2: episode for another pop and lock but there was a dramatic film made about this subject in 1964. It's called failsafe. I actually went back and watched that one again which I hadn't seen um, for a very long time. It stars uh, Henry Fonda as the president of the United States and that one is, very grim, and the parallels between these two movies are really quite striking because it's also premised on a an accidental launch and the attempt to shoot down an aircraft before it carries out um, its attack, just as in Str- in Doctor Strangelove. But it ends in 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 tragedy, this horrific tragedy.
3: Well, um, hold on. Just because Strangelove is funny doesn't mean it's not. Well, right. we're talking about not nuclear dark. holocaust yes, not end. just not yeah, right, the annihilation of all life on earth so <laughs> so yeah. so that's what's
2: striking to me is how we we look back on that film and it is a comedy it's intended as a comedy and some of it's just the subtlety so many little subtle things in the script and and in the film um but it but it is possible it was possible to make dramatic films that during that period um the truth is that Failsafe just isn't as good. It's not as good a movie. The acting isn't as good. The script isn't as good. And ultimately, it's it's far inferior to Dr. Strangelove.
0: Emma, one thing you mentioned was the aspect of, of Gallo's humor and the the comfort that the audience most likely would have had with a movie like this because it was – close to reality. It felt real. It was something they were dealing with every day. I think for perhaps people that have never seen this before, like uh, Natalie, I'm just going (laughs) to out her and say that she hadn't seen this movie before we recorded this. For people who have not seen this movie before or perhaps didn't live through a period like that, I feel like it might be hard to believe that something as absurd like this could be seen as an accurate depiction of what was going on at the time. How accurate is the plot of this movie? I mean, obviously there's some absurdism involved, but I think the root of some of that absurdity is the distance it has to reality. So so how close to reality is Dr. Strangelove?
4: Oh, where do you want to start?
5: Wait, this isn't a
3: documentary. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Go for it, Eric
5: yeah, so so there' are several there's several aspects in the film that existed in one form or another, maybe not necessarily in the early 1960s when the film came out, but did exist in the Cold War. Um, there was an equivalent of a Doomsday machine uh, when the Soviet Union was worried about the possibility of leadership decapitation from US. submarine launch ballistic missiles, as they got more accurate in the 70s, and also uh, the fear of decapitation attacks by U.S. ground-based uh, nuclear forces in the 1980s, the Soviets implemented a system called Perimeter. And what Perimeter was designed to do is it would have a series of sensors throughout the country, and if it detected a mix of inputs like radiation or, or uh, like the vibrations of nuclear detonation, it would automatically send a launch order to a specially modified missile that would fly above the Soviet Union and relay go orders to Soviet nuclear forces. And initially designed, I believe it did not have a human in the loop uh, to verify what was going on, which gets pretty scary, right? That That's pretty darn close. And it didn't happen in the 1960s, but it happened. It, it, it did happen in the cold war. Um, other aspects, you know, when they're talking about, the ridiculous uh, mineshaft gap at the end of the, at the end of the movie, there was like the missile gap. And during the Kennedy administration where the U S was deathly afraid that the Soviets had more missiles than us. And it all became about arms racing with them. Mm -hmm. um, And it turned out that the intelligence reporting wasn't great. Um, On the characters of general Ripper and general Buck Turgidson uh, basically, combining aspects of General Curtis LeMay, who was the found- or the first commander of Strategic Air Command, a big believer in strategic bombing, uh, kind of a kind of nuts um, in many respects, and who I think one of the famous quotes I, I don't remember it word for word, but it was something akin to, you know, if I think that we're we're in it with the Russians, I'm I'm going I'm feel comfortable telling my bombers to go even if I don't get an order from the president. So these sorts of things, like I know, you know, absurdity and and satire, yeah, but the point of good satire is that it's uncomfortably close to reality. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things in this movie that are uncomfortably close to the reality of different parts of how. Uh, nuclear deterrence thinking and policy happened in the United States during the Cold War? Yeah,
4: I mean, it's just, honestly, it's actually, if you you were to sort of strip out the jokes and strip out some of the like, sort of sillier personalities, um, (laughs) honestly, it really could be, you can see how they started thinking out that it would be a dramatic film, right? Um, You know, we have a lot of um, firsthand accounts from people that sort of worked in the nuclear space during that era, um, you know, and a lot of the arguments that we hear in the film are really things that that they were actually talking about the idea that in the late 1940s, early 50s, sort of before the Soviets really ramped up their production, that the U.S. actually had an advantage in nuclear weapons, and well, maybe we should just clobber the commies now while we still have the advantage, and before they can strike back. That was an actual debate that happened in the policy sphere and among sort of military command. Um, and then you hear it in the film, and it sounds so absurd. It was a real, it was a real uh, sort of debate that we actually had. Um, we've got firsthand accounts from people. Um, actually, the Bruce Blair who unfortunately died just a couple of weeks ago. Um, he ended up running Global Zero, one of the campaigns to end um, nuclear weapons. He was a former um, missile silo um he worked the missile silo in, in his military service. And he basically publicly said that he came around to thinking nuclear weapons should be banned when he figured out how to get around the safeguards and just launch all the nukes himself. Um, and so, oh gosh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if he was right, but that's what he believed and then dedicated his whole life to, to sort of trying to end nuclear weapons. So, I mean, as, as Eric says, a lot of these things, we're, we're joking about them, they seem really absurd, but almost all of them are, are barely a step away from reality.
1: Well, I have, I have a pretty important question. How accurate is the depiction of the war room? Um, because I, <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I was, when I was watching this, I was like, oh, I like kind of could see this being a thing. Um, But I was just curious, like that whole idea of like getting everyone together and having discussion um, in this, like. Uh, for the I've, i'm assuming most of the listeners have seen this movie even though i hadn't seen it but um this round big round table with like an entire map of the world and they're in this like it's like a dark room um i'm kind of wondering if you think discussions like that occur in rooms like that or how how accurate that th- those scenes were
4: in, in the location that they were as well <laughs> A big room full of white men making decisions.
5: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's accurate.
3: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) America's most precious national security secret is the big board. (laughs) (laughs) I, I had two thoughts. I had two thoughts. The the ceiling
2: in that room is ridiculously high sort of based on, you can sort of judge based on the, on the screens themselves. And, and of course we have seen pictures of the, the war room in the white house in the bunker, which, which is, you know, is in the basement. So it's, it has a pretty low ceiling. It's pretty, it's pretty tight quarters. Um, but my other favorite uh little tidbit from that, from that room is the, the enormous buffet table uh, <laughs> right. laid out with f- every kind of food you can imagine, and the yeah. the Soviet ambassador shows up. He's complaining. It's like, you don't have any fresh fish. Where's the fresh fish? It's like <laughs> ask aspir- the- like- <laughs> yeah, yeah, for Cuban
3: cigars. <laughs> yeah, ask for Cuban cigars.
2: <say>, of course. <laughs> so, so I thought that was <laughs> hilarious. That it was and like a you know like the kind of spread you would see for like a football team or something. You know, eat as much as you possibly can. It's all it's all free basically.
0: And and it it plays a a, a plot point later or. Er, in a a scene that was actually cut from the end of the film. Um, Right when Dr. Strangelove stands up and, and takes a few steps, originally in the cut of the film, he falls flat on his face, And basically, after a series of circumstances, a huge custard pie fight erupts between all of the members (laughs) of this council. And it is this crazy, absurd scene where they're all pieing each other in the face. And this room is covered in custard everywhere (laughs) until at one point he gets up and tries to shoot himself in the head, but is stopped. And they ended up cutting it because it was, uh, I believe... Uh, the Kennedy assassination happened and some of the lines and, and the circumstances, they just thought it, it was too close and too dark to what had just happened. So they ended up cutting it. And I think, some of the performances from the actors, they they didn't play it as straight and, and serious as Kubrick had wanted it. Um, and you can see this. Uh, I think John pointed out a little bit uh, earlier before we recorded about how some of the actors tend to break character a little bit and and laugh at each other a lot. Um and it, they just couldn't hold it in during that final scene. And it, it it kind of ruined the the message of what they wanted this this pie fight as sort of this absurd war like scenario to symbolize. So it, it it also is it sort of shows the sort of hubris of the entire thing, but also does play a story point in the original uh, like screenplay that Kubrick had, had worked on.
2: But we still have the line, one of the best lines in movie history. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. It's the war room. Remember, because they have the (laughs) sort of wrestling with each other.
1: So I actually knew that line existed before I ever saw the movie. So I wasn't completely a Dr. love newbie. Um, my other, kind of my other, another thing that I thought was funny along those lines is within the first few two, I think it was the second or third scene in the movie, we're in a, they're uh, in a room on the base and there's a giant sign that says peace is our profession. And it's like, <laughs> uh, and it's like on top of the whiteboard. And I just, I just was like, this is, too too real, uh, but I was just laughing. I was like, because I knew this was it. This whole movie was going to be about uh, nuclear warfare. I was like, that's an interesting image to open up the movie with. Um- you know,
3: something related. <laughs> I didn't know. That I, Chris said he's watched this movie like four or five times. I probably watched it like forty or fifty times, but not <laughs> in, not until last night did I realize that on the desk in the big war room is a binder that says. World targets in megadeths.
4: <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know that pieces are profession is, is actually true, right? That was the motto of the Strategic Air Command. So again, just another oh one gosh. of these things where like you look at it, you laugh, and you can't believe that it's true, but holy crap, it was true.
5: Well well when you get into the discussion of nuclear deterrence, and so this is this is like something where I think all all honest analysts of this stuff Need to come to grips with the fact that you're trying to explain something that hasn't happened yet since, since, you know, the use of, of nuclear bombs against Japan, which was, we're coming up on the 75th anniversary. But the whole study of deterrence is how to not have something happen. And the problem with that is, you know, you, you don't know if your theory works or if it doesn't work because you don't have like the case of it happening. And you don't want the case of it happening. And so there's a certain natural absurdity to nuclear deterrence thinking that you just have to grapple with because, yeah, like in the minds of deterrence theory and in the minds of the United States Strategic Air Command and the way that this country talks about nuclear weapons, these are things that are supposed to not be used. These are things that are supposed to prevent conflict. So that's, I think, where the pieces are profession bit comes from. Um, and maybe they're right, right? Like that's the thing about deterrence theory. You don't know. Maybe it does work. Maybe it does, uh, deter war or deter certain types of war. Um, but at the end of the day, it's hard to separate out, you know, does that work or have we skated by on a lot of dumb luck? And that's exactly, yeah,
2: dumb luck. Y- that's exactly what I keep coming back to. It's, it's so easy to imagine scenarios that are that are depicted in this film playing out both in terms of accidental launch but also sort of personal reliability right so um and and wondering how it is over 75 years we've managed to avoid an accidental detonation we've come close uh we're told uh but but not That close in the grand scheme, not as close as, you know, they, they came very close in this film to stopping the attack because they were, you know, basically telling the Soviets where to shoot at, um, and, and, you know, uh, or, or recalling, uh, the, the, the bombers, uh, things like that, but, um, but how how close have we come and and can we can we expect to go another 75 years uh, on the basis of dumb luck i think it's a i think it's a worthwhile question
4: you know i think for me actually um one of the things that this film really actually sort of Puts at the, the forefront is the idea that even if deterrence does work, um, you know, and, and Kubrick brought on board Tom Schelling, who was the man who sort of um, cr- basically created all of our frameworks for thinking about deterrence theory. He was a real expert, um, but I think the film highlights that even if all of that works, we've still got the the human factor. We've got accidental launch. Um, you know, there's just there's things that you cannot predict, you can't prepare for, um, you know, it's the Jurassic Park problem, right? Life finds a way. Um, <laughs> and so we do have these cases, like Chris alludes to, in the Cold War, where we came very close to accidental launch of nuclear weapons. Um, the case that I sort of think about a lot when this comes up is uh, a man called Stanislav Petrov, who was a mid-tier Soviet defense officer um, tasked to man basically a, a radar device. Um, and, 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 you know, one day his radar just showed that the US was invading en masse. All the bombers were coming over. And, you know, the Soviet Union had, you know, 10 minutes to respond if it didn't want its nuclear uh, capability to be destroyed. And he hesitated. And he said, this is strange. Nothing else um, makes sense here. There's no increased tensions in Berlin. This just doesn't make sense. And he didn't launch. Um, and it was a, a radar anomaly it was a weather anomaly. And so if, if he hadn't done that, we probably would have had a nuclear war. And so there are these cases where we just came so close. Um, and even if deterrence works, you just can't control for that problem.
5: The, the trepidation of... So Emma brought up the great uh, point with Petrov and like his trepidation, right? And I think that that's also on display here in the movie. So there is that human aspect of what if you get it wrong, but there's also like an important human aspect in the history of the Cold War of there were times when people were like, this doesn't feel right, right? Like this doesn't feel like the real deal and they helped prevent it. And you see that in the movie. Uh, the very first reaction of the bomber crew when the code comes in for doing yeah. wing attack plan R is, are you sure? Like, and like the captain doesn't believe it at first, or the pilot doesn't believe it at first, and he has to double check it. And then they have to radio back into base to double check it. Um, and that's not supposed to happen, right? If you right. think about, if you think about like nuclear use and credibility and all this other sort of, uh, you know, fine grain stuff that goes into deterrence, if you get that order, you're just supposed to do it, right? You're just supposed to go ahead and do it because the the penalty of delay could be sort of unacceptable defeat. But time after time again, in the movie and in real life, people do delay. People do question. And oftentimes that has made the difference between, you know, no no detonation or a detonation.
3: Um, but, but there's a flip and, side to that coin, yeah. right? Because it's not just that sort of kernel of human goodness that is relevant in this case and that might save us. It's also human frailty. Uh, yes. Jack Jack Ripper's kind of descent into madness that centers around this kind of <laughs> Cold War paranoia is part of the equation too. And I think as a satire, a lot of what the movie is trying to say is um, people are frail and flawed. And that's why you need to be very careful about giving them lots of coercive power.
5: Yeah. There's both sides of that human nature happening at the same time. And it happens right. at the same time in real life.
2: So-, so- just in this case, so Ripper, we, you know, at some point, I, I love that I actually found the, the, the screenplay because the, the line where, you know, they get the message from uh, Ripper calling into the duty officer, you know, I've I've uh, ordered my, my bombers for the sake of our country and our way of life. Uh, And he's basically urging them to launch the attack. And then his message ends, um, God willing, we will prevail in peace and freedom from fear and in true health, through the purity (laughs) of essence and our natural fluids. God bless you all. And and Turgidson is relaying this this message to the rest of the people in the war room. And he says, then they hung up. We're still trying to figure out the meaning (laughs) of that last phrase, sir. And the president responds, well, he's obviously psychotic. And what's interesting when you think about this is, yes, Ripper is obviously psychotic, and and it's and played as such uh, throughout the course of the film, but Turgidson. Is only a, a small, you know, quarter turn away from being crazy, and yet he is not portrayed as crazy. He's portrayed as goofy, but not psychotic. And so there's a very, right. very fine line between a guy who deliberately launches his bombers on his own authority because of the attack on his precious bodily fluids, and the other gentleman who is prepared to take advantage of this accidental launch to then launch a full strike, and uh, because that that will catch the ruskies with their pants down. That's That's how close these two individuals are between psychosis and crazier than a March Hare and wise strategic logic on the part of, uh, you know, of a senior general.
4: You know, I do like to. I I think the film is actually quite subversive on that front, and I, I find it, frankly, amazing that it can be so subversive so soon after the the Red Scare, um, because you know you watch this, and and Chris is right. You know, Ripper and Turgidson are just two sides of the same coin, and it really does invite the audience, I think, to question. You know, well, obviously, one guy's insane. Maybe the other guy's insane too. And it really invites them to Mm -hmm. question the whole concept of mutually assured destruction and an arms race with the Soviets in a way that for the time I think was perhaps risky, even for the the director and and the the people filming it.
3: Emma's right. Uh, This movie got reviewed uh, like hell. There's a lot of people that called it. (laughs) Yeah, called into question uh, Kubrick's patriotism, said he was, you know, this was a propaganda win for the Soviets. And it's interesting because, yeah, it is a it is a sort of subversive film in the way that Emma says. But I think all these years later, most of what people think about it is how amazingly accurate it was, as we were saying before, which should right. kind of – tell us something about what is considered subversive today and whether 50 years from now we'll go, oh, the crazies were actually dead on.
4: I I don't know. I think, I mean, not not to take us completely off topic here, but I think we're already kind of getting there, right? People now are looking around and saying, hey, maybe Osama bin Laden was kind of right about getting America bogged down in the Middle East and how it was really bad for America. I, I, I feel like we might actually be getting there on some of those points, which is incredibly disturbing.
0: Yeah, little did people know that uh, Kubrick was actually going to be responsible for getting us to the moon anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Can I just actually, can I just pause for a minute? Because I I do want to comment on on Stanley Kubrick as a filmmaker. So I had a a rule for my son before he went to college that there were certain films that he had to watch. And one of the criteria was he must watch a Stanley Kubrick movie other than eyes wide shut. So if you think about this (laughs) filmmaker for, for a lot, for a whole bunch of reasons. But anyway, I mean, if you think about this filmmaker and, and how brilliant his, his, the range of films that he did. Okay. So, so 2001 is clearly a cutting edge science fiction film. Full Metal Jacket is a cutting edge war film. Before that was Paths of Glory, which is another terrific war film. And then uh, this dark comedy and The Shining, which is, I think one of the best horror movies ever made. I mean, his, his skills as a filmmaker are 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 all on display in this movie because he was the writer as well as the director. And then and he conceived of this. And I think, again, I think when you compare it to some other films of that era, other films that I like, like On the Beach, which was a very, very dark film about the aftermath of a nuclear uh, nuclear war, um or something like 7 Days in May which also came out just like the, yep. a month or two within the release of Doctor Strange Love and yet this is the film that that is that sort of transcends all of the other movies of that same genre um uh in that period
1: there are some other things I was kind of uh, thinking about while watching the film, more like trying to consider if they were realistic or not. And since I have all of you experts on. Um, so the comment about B 52 bombers all being within two hours of their target from Russia and then flying 24 7, 365. How much would that something like that cost?
0: I'm expecting exact numbers from all of you.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly is true that in order to conduct that kind of attack, it requires the kind of global military presence that we started having in the Cold War. And uh, having a global military presence does require a lot of money, costs a lot. So (laughs) it's expensive to be able to pull something off like that. Yeah.
4: Although actually, um, just as as an aside, just geographically speaking, the era that Dr. Strangelove is set in, where we were mostly using bombers and they were in the air, um, a lot of those bombers were based out of the US and Canada because the plan would be that they would fly across the, the North Pole to get to their targets in the Soviet Union. It's only later into the 60s and 70s when we start using more missiles that a lot of them are based in Europe. And we have debates about basing them in Turkey and elsewhere. Um, So in the very early period, um, it was actually less global. It might have been as expensive, um, but it it was a little less global.
5: I mean, airborne alert was a real thing. Airborne alert was a real thing. Right now, we don't do airborne alert anymore. Um, Instead, you have... Minutemen, three ICBMs in the center of the United States. Uh, so time is an interesting factor here because the movie is right. almost exactly as long as it would take for bombers to reach targets. It's it's just about two hours long. And they say in the opening sort of segment, you know, the bombers are two hours away from their targets, um, which I didn't notice until like the last time I viewed it yesterday for this. And that's like the sixth time I've watched the movie. Um, but You don't have that anymore. (laughs) Um, That might have been true when the bomber force was the main thing. And you also have liquid fuel missiles, which take a lot of fuel. But now, you know, most of the U.S. and Russian Chinese uh, nuclear forces are all based off of solid fueled missiles. A lot of them are at sea um, and their flight times to target the ICBMs based in the U.S. have about a 30 minute flight time. Missiles fired out of a submarine, uh, depending on its location, could be there in far less, in the order of 10 to 15 minutes. And you really start, and now hypersonic glide vehicles are also bringing this into play now of you have these further and further condensed decision-making timelines. And you have to make mm-hmm. sure you make the right decision at the right time and you don't have as much time to spare. This movie might not have been a possible uh in ten years later, right, in the nineteen seven in the early nineteen seventies, because at that point more of the force had shifted to missiles and you didn't have two hours. Um, it would have been a very short right. film. Right. <laughs> because you also you also can't recall you also can't recall a missile once it's fired. Um, so that kind of and you, it's like this tension between, you know, wanting to have in the minds of the planner right the credible deterrent, and I put that in quotes. Um, the credible deterrent and the effective. It's like, yeah, quick strikes are sort of from a military perspective, a good idea, but from a avoiding the death of everyone on the planet idea, probably not as good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So would you say there's not as much room for like, you know how we were talking about like the tension between um, someone like use (laughs) not using their head, like in this sense that they were saying that the order they weren't sure about if the order was correct and they were like questioning the way the order came through, do you think there's even less time for that now because of the system that's set up with missiles rather than B-52 bombers? There's less people to make decisions, right?
5: Yes. The the timeline is more condensed and I worry about new systems like hypersonic glide and cyber and all this other stuff as further condensing the timeline. The good news picture, you know, again, I'll put good news in quotes. The good news picture is that <laughs> You don't have the scenario of US Soviet Union or US Russia reaching for the nukes right away. And this is because of arms control agreements. This is because of reductions in the arsenal of, of many countries. Um, you know, when the, when this movie was made, US Soviet arsenals were in like the high thousands each, and now they're in like the low one thousands each. So that helps, right? And the mutual fear of surprise attack isn't. As high anymore, um, I think the problem. And, but the problem is, arms control agreements are going away. <laughs> um, the Trump administration yeah. doesn't seem very interested in them, um, and that those sort of breaks on things and the uh, this renewed focus on you know competition with China and Russia and more aggressive U.S. posturing in the world it might come back to bite us in terms of some of these ideas that we thought we left behind, maybe becoming more. Uh, attractive or popular.
4: And lest, Eric, be too comforting here for everybody, I think also important to remember why warning time is actually important. The decision time that we're talking about, this isn't like policymakers, you know, they don't get a warning and then it's about it's about, you know, enough time to notify people to get into bomb shelters or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the time that the president has to decide whether he's going to launch all of our nukes in retaliation and wipe out another country. And so we're talking about does the president have, you know, 15 minutes, seven minutes five minutes three minutes to decide whether he's going to launch our massive nuclear arsenal so um that decision window shrinking that's a really bad thing
0: we do love to keep it light here on pop
4: (laughs) 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 could we talk about the toxic masculinity in the film for a few minutes absolutely
0: (laughs) yeah let's really let's keep it light and pivot to toxic masculinity (laughs) of which there is plenty
3: you know, I think a lot of people don't realize the opening credits are a strong sexual innuendo. It's the oh, yeah. uh, in air refueling with like mildly romantic elevator music <laughs> in the background. <laughs> it is highly suggestive.
0: Everything uh, in this movie. It's yeah. just, it's, of course. It, I, watching when, it now, it's kind of like I. I felt dirty just watching the movie at
3: times. <laughs> Slim Pickens jumping out the plane with the thing in between his legs is clearly a big phallic symbol. I mean, Jack Ripper Jack Ripper first realizes his uh, conspiracy theory about the Soviets trying to steal away his bodily fluids in essence after the physical act of love, he says, after which he found himself in a state of fatigue and (laughs) emptiness which is like all right, so something's wrong with this guy's masculinity that has thrown him into uh, committing to nuclear holocaust (laughs) so oh uh, it's okay
4: the problem has not reoccurred Mandrake I can reassure you of that (laughs) (laughs) I believe this is what he says right but you know this, this whole film is about sort of the just the weird way in which nuclear weapons as sort of toxic masculinity really just got entwined in the early Cold War period and something that's continued until this day. So there's actually some really interesting scholarship. Um, A woman named Carol Cohn, uh, a researcher in political science, is sort of the best known for this. Um, But research on on how um, some of the sort of more, um, you know, just things like, you know, generals comparing missile length um, is an actual thing, (laughs) right? You know, research on, you know, weapons programs were actually focused on making the missiles longer. As absurd and ridiculous as that sounds, it was a real thing. Um, And the whole way through Dr. Strangelove, right, we just get all these innuendos. um, And again, in, in keeping with our theme here, which is the film is very close to reality, that's also the reality of a lot of discussions of deterrence and nuclear weapons today, right? Does your Uh, Does your missile have penetrating capability? You know, is it a bunker buster? You know, all of these (laughs) things, just the way that we talk about nuclear weapons is just absolutely chock full of ridiculous innuendos. This is Locked In.
1: So, guys, what have you guys been consuming while we've been still in quarantine? Uh, this is I've lost count of how many days this is now. Uh, but other types of movies, TV shows, or maybe even books uh, that you've really enjoyed that you think our audience might like as well. Eric, why don't you go first?
5: Oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you might regret this because uh, my thing was going to be Dungeons & Dragons.
1: <laughs> oh, yes.
5: <no>. Uh, <laughs> thanks to quarantine and, yes. and like working from home not having to worry about commutes and, and like, when do people get off work exactly? Um, my friends and I have been able to play so much, so much more uh, D&D since this thing began. And it's been a really fun way to like, you know, unplug, uh, think about things. Um, I, I've, I've informed one of my groups about this podcast, so I'm not going to go into any uh,
2: uh, of one
5: of the the stories I'm leading them through because, um there might be some things in there that I don't want them to find out yet. <laughs> no spoiler. Um, <laughs> but suffice it, suffice it to say, true. many of the people I play with are a mix of like libertarians and government types. And so I see a lot of them sort of emulate certain aspects of what they do uh, in their characters. Uh, but <laughs> so that's been a very fun way of like, just getting, getting out of, of, you know, nukes and missile mode, even though I love nukes and missile mode. Um, and yeah, so that, that's how I've been filling my time. I've played over 200 hours um, online, oh
2: alone, <laughs> online alone,
5: online uh, alone in the last four months.
0: Are you oh. uh, are you playing, uh, are you writing everything yourself? Are you playing like a, a pre-written adventure or anything? Uh,
5: one of them, so I'm, I run two games. One of them is uh, everything I've, I've sort of made up myself uh, with my wife Julie's help. Uh, she's been great. Uh, and the other game is the salt marsh setting. So it's all like pre-made. So I don't have to do as much work for that.
2: So my, uh, my wife, Krista and I have been watching game of Thrones. So Krista had never watched game (gasps) of Thrones and, um, I had watched it pretty, pretty consistently from the very beginning. Um, and so in some respects, this is either my second or third watch, watch of the, of the series. I I sort of rewatched the first four seasons, um, before. And, um, it's been it's been a lot of fun and i wasn't sure if she was going to like it because she's not a big fan of sort of science fiction and fantasy and things like that but she really does like it she appreciates the the quality of the of the uh the the filmmaking and the acting and things like that and i i will confess um, uh, thinking that I was paying close attention, there have been a few times when she's asked me a question about who is that person, how is that person related to so and so, and I've <laughs> had to em- embarrassingly like Google because I, I even I can't keep track of all the names and their correct connections. Uh, but it has been a lot of fun. Um, and uh and of course for all Pop and Lock fans, we've also been watching Parks and Rec over and oh, over and over again. And uh, so my, good. My my favorite Father's Day gift uh, from my daughter Caitlin was a mouse rat t-shirt which I now wear proudly. <laughs> <you know. laughs>
4: Well, I uh, I, uh, still, every time I come on this podcast, I regret having kids because I I don't have any time to to actually watch anything. Um, But I thought I would suggest a couple of things that Dr. Strangelove reminded me of. So basically like more modern things I've enjoyed the last couple of years that that I feel are are sort of similar in some ways. Um, So the first one is if you're interested in sort of nuclear weapons, um, the decision-making process, how war might play out, there's a really fun sort of, of um, prospective fiction book um, by a, a nuclear weapons researcher called Jeffrey Lewis. Um, the book's called The 2020 Commission. Um, and he basically goes through and writes like a future history of the war with North Korea and how Donald Trump manages to oh. get us into nuclear war. Um, and it's a little scary because it is, again, very close <laughs> to reality. But if you enjoy Dr. <laughs> love, you're probably going to enjoy that book. Um, and then the other one is um, recently I rewatched Death of Stalin, uh, by Arnaldo ah, and uh, your yes. cheek,, And that is probably the closest analog um, in terms of sort of another dark comedy that is so dark, you cannot believe that it's possibly true. And yet almost everything in it is pretty much true there's a few deviations from reality but everything in that movie pretty much is true um and yet you laugh and laugh and laugh at just the absurdity of it and people are getting shot in the head all the time so <laughs> it's just so dark and it reminds me a lot of dr strange love in that way so, so those are sort of two things that you know if you like dr strange love you're gonna like those
5: I think my favorite line from death of Stalin was when I can't remember who said it, but it's like someone said, I had, I've had nightmares that have made more sense than this.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That goes for this pandemic too. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I'm in a perpetual state of uh, showlessness. Uh, there's lots of good shows out there. People tell me about them and encourage me to watch. And I, I just uh, some it's it's me, not you or the shows. But uh, <laughs> I did I did uh, recently watch the first season of Rick and Morty, which is which is a decent show. And uh, I'm rewatching <laughs> some HBO Max put up a bunch of uh, Akira Kurosawa films. So I'm rewatching some of those.
4: Oh, cool.
0: Uh, well, I, uh, let's see here. I have been occupying my time over the past few days since the weekend began with uh, a video game, uh, Paper Mario and the Origami King, uh, which is a lot of fun. It is, so it's a Mario game, but it's more akin to, if you've played any of the Paper Mario games before, like a, a, a turn-based role-playing game. Um, but this introduces like a grid like puzzle mechanic where you have to like spin this wheel and position enemies before you like attack them. But it also exists in a world where everything is made of like crafting supplies or paper and all, <laughs> but like all of the normal people that you would be friends with have been folded Uh, into origami versions of themselves (laughs) by this evil prince who's trying to take over the world and turn the world into origami. And so it's really cute and really funny. um, And it's, it's really simple. And you just, like, go through and you're, like, trying to... There's giant ribbons that have wrapped around princess peach's castle and taken it to the top of a mountain and you need to destroy the ribbons to set her free it's absurd and it's so much fun i highly recommend it paperario and the origami king yes
5: <laughs> Origami's so pretty so i'm not sure this guy is actually a villain
4: <laughs> well that's the thing
5: is it's like the enemies are all really cute and the, the like <laughs> folds it's like beautiful art
0: but they're also evil so you have to you have to for princess peach you have to for the mushroom kingdom you have to save toad you're constantly running around and like hitting things with a hammer to free them they'll, they'll be like stuck in a wall and you have to smack them with a hammer and then they thank you for it it's very odd but it's a good time i recommend it it's a good laugh and it's an easy game that's still challenging and sort of visually interesting so if you have a nintendo switch go for paper mario and the origami King.
1: <laughs> um for me I have been watching the Amazon Prime show Homecoming. I just finished the first season. Um it's like it's a sci-fi uh, the second season just came out, but it's like a sci. It's a sci-fi show. Um kind that, of a
0: political thriller too, right?
1: It's like, yeah, I'm. It's kind of hard to tell. So basically, like the plot of the show, at least for the first season, apparently the second season is very different. But um, the first season is like these troops are returning home from war, and they supposedly opted into this homecoming like facility that was supposed to like prepare them to like join civilian life, but it turns out like without giving away too many spoilers, that they are actually there against their will. And there's a lot of events that occur that they're like trying, basically you find this out in like the second or third episode, that they're trying to wipe the memory of troops so that they can redeploy them. Um, so they can like send them back out. Um, but then it's also very interesting because it has, uh, I am I think, it, yes, yeah, Julia Roberts is like one of the main characters and she is a psychologist at this, homecoming facility and they they didn't tell any of the people working there what the actual aim of the facility is so it's it's pretty interesting because then like you're seeing Julia roberts have this like really internal struggle when she finds out what she's actually like contributing to about like how she can help these people but like and then there's like the government gets involved and then she's like worried about like being like kidnapped and stuff like there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, tension over whether or not she can like tell the truth about what this facility is doing but the ultimate aim is that it's like this private company What's to prove to the DoD that like they have this great system for like wiping memories, and they want to sell that system to the DoD? Anyway, the first season's awesome. Um, I just started the second season, and then uh, other than that, I am patiently waiting for the uh, third season of Selling Sunset to come out. If you want a t- <laughs> if, if you want a TV show that is completely mindless and is about um, real estate brokers in the LA area, so you get to see the great houses that they're selling, and then you get to see get to see all the drama between these like women in their mid-30s that live in la who like only really are real estate real estate uh agents maybe like once a week and do a bunch of other things like are on soap operas um but it's like a combination of fixer upper and like real house beverly Hills. <laughs> um, <laughs> which sounds weird but it's great um anyway so I'm, I'm patiently waiting for that to come out soon uh yeah so that's kind of what i've been up to <laughs> if uh
0: if you want to experience the story of homecoming but don't have amazon prime video or, inter- or anything there is it is based on a podcast that gimlet media it? produced yes um oh. i believe only the first the first season of the TV show is what it is based on. And then they kind of went in their own direction, but it was the first scripted uh, audio drama podcast that uh, Gimlet media produced. uh, And they were just, I think a, a year or two years ago, actually bought by Spotify uh, as sort of like one of the premier uh, scripted uh, podcast producers. So it's oh, cool. very, very well done production-wise. Uh, and is, it, has, it also has a really awesome cast. For instance, uh, the lead uh, soldier in the uh, podcast version is Oscar Isaac. Um, Oh. So you might like that as well. And uh, I I have also watched a lot of the first season of the TV show, and uh, there are some differences. So if you've watched one and want to listen to the other or the other way around, you might enjoy that as well. Cool. Thanks for listening. If you're sad the episode's over, don't worry. We'll meet again some sunny day. In the meantime, make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock, with an E, pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.